Uh, when John Neville came a couple weeks ago, I told you that we've known each other five or six years, and Craig and I have not known each other as long, I think more or less by sight up until a year ago, but uh, last year when we were getting ordained, Presbytery was running late, and so we were examined at the same time. And I don't know about you, Craig, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel a bit like, remember in Spartacus when Kirk Douglas and Tony Robbins are like best friends because they had to fight together in the arena? I feel like, <laughs> I feel like we're bonded now after, after being tried together and... Uh, being on the uh, on the hot seat together at Presbytery. So, uh, but Craig, uh, before you preach, is going to tell us just a little bit about church planting in Yakima. I encouraged you guys when John was here to think about maybe joining that church plant, which is nearby in Ferndale. Uh, I the thought same holds true. Well, I thought I shouldn't say that, but but Craig actually said a family from Christchurch is like moving over there. They're so excited. And I know I I, I uh, when Craig talked to us about it, I thought thought, yeah, like, let's move over there, Kelsey, and join that. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, I'm a pastor here, and we need to be here. <laughs> but it's exciting stuff they're doing, and Yakima really needs uh, gospel-preaching churches. And so I'm excited for Craig to preach. And, and uh, the, I guess the last reminder is just this, before I let you take over, is that uh, during the Q&A Sunday school time in the back room, Craig is going to be heading that, and so there'll be more time to ask questions about that church plant, what that looks like. Uh, and so I would encourage you to come back in the fellowship hall for that Q&A time. Thanks, Nathan. Hey, there's certain things you don't want to tell your church is that you're thinking about uh, moving. So just, <laughs> just free tips for the morning. It is so great uh, to be with you guys this morning. You know, some of you I've gotten to know a little bit. I've, I've, I've been able to spend some time in the evening service a couple times over the last couple summers. But this is my first time actually worshiping with you guys on Sunday morning. It's so great to be here, to sing with you, to worship with you all. Uh, and to do it with my family. So thank you so much for having us here this morning. I'm just going to spend a few minutes talking about uh, our church planning efforts, and then we're going to dive right into God's Word this morning. I found the clock, so uh, we're good. I think I can still read the hands, you know. I prefer the digital numbers, but, uh, you know, if he goes long, that's why. He doesn't know how to read the clock, guys. So, um, so I, I'm a fourth-generation Washingtonian, uh, my parents still live on some of that piece of land that uh, my family homesteaded on in central Washington in the late 1800s. So I love, uh, I love this state. I am rooted in this place. Um, it wasn't until I moved to, to St. Louis that my residency changed uh, just for uh, three years. But I'm glad to be back and have my Washington driver's license again. And, you know, one of the reasons why we came back to Washington was to plant a church. And we knew that, me and my wife, as we were praying about it, we were feeling like God was probably calling us and leading us to the east side of the mountains. And so I'm from the Yakima Valley, a little town that's actually connected to, to Linden a little bit with its Dutch uh, heritage, a sunny side. Um, in fact, we would play sports in Linden every now and then growing up. I don't play sports anymore, obviously, but uh, at one point I did. And so as we were praying and, and God was leading us to where to plant, we decided, you know, the Lord was really leading us uh, back to Central Washington to Yakima. We, uh, one of the things you need to plant a church is uh, this funny thing, you need people. And in Yakima, we, uh, we had a, a, a handful of families already that I knew from my time living there before that they wanted us to come and plant a church. And so we explored a few other places, and then finally we were like, I think that God is leading us to Yakima. And so over this past year, we've actually been meeting out there as a growing kind of uh, church once a month. Uh, we have a Sunday evening worship service once a month out there. And it's been amazing to see how it's grown from just a couple families that have been interested to now there's 14, 15 families that are interested in being a part of this church plant. It's incredible. Uh, and it's one of those things that this kind of work only happens through prayer. 
it's not through our fantastic strategy because I don't really have one except for I email people, I meet with people, and we worship together, and it grows. And we even have two non-Christian families that are interested in being a part of this and growing. And so it's, it's been an incredible work, and we're really excited. And like you know, uh, Nathan said, we have one family that's even going to come and move from Bellingham to be a part of this work, to help be a part of it. And so, as Nathan said, if, as I'm preaching, if you're like a little worried about it, pray for me. But if you like it, consider coming to Yakima. You know, uh, housing prices are kind of nice. And if you like the sunshine, that happens a lot out there. You know, it's not a bad place. Uh, but we're really excited to see where God's um, taking this. Our plan right now is we're going to be moving there this summer. As things continue to grow, we're going to be start launching public worship uh, this fall. And, you know, the denomination that we're part of, the Presbyterian Church in America, we don't have any churches uh, in that part of central Washington. In fact, even the CRC church in Yakima closed down this last fall. Um, and so there's a profound opportunity as a church there in general is getting old and, and dying. There's a profound opportunity for new churches to come in and to plant and to bring new life into that community. So we're really excited for where God's calling us. Like Nathan said, I'd love to talk to you after the service and then in the Sunday school hour. I have a few booklets out there that have more specific stuff about the church planning also have these little cards um, that you can put on your fridge or something like that. I'd love to be on your fridge. And also there's a little sign-up form, uh, which you can put your email address down on if you want to get our updates and kind of join our support team. We'd love that. And, you know, finally, if you feel called to join us in a financial partnership, um, we would love that as well. So please talk to me afterwards. I'd love to share with you more stories. Or, you know, it's possible, highly likely, that some of you have connections to even that area. I'd love to get those phone numbers and email addresses from you. So... Uh, with that, let's turn to God's Word now. We're going to be in the book of Colossians, Colossians 1, verses 3 through 14. You know, this is, a, this is an interesting book, uh, interesting letter that Paul, Paul the Apostle wrote because this is a church that he's writing to, a young church plant that he's writing to. And it's a church that Paul himself never visited, that I don't think any apostle ever visited. It was someone that he discipled, Epaphras, that ended up planting this church. And Paul is sending uh, these words to Epaphras and to the church at Colossae and as a means of encouragement. It was a church that was struggling. What is our identity as a new church? As there's cultural pressures coming in, what is our identity? And it's something I've been thinking about as I'm planting a church. You know, what is our identity going to be? How are we going to be formed? And whether you're starting a new church, though, or whether you're an existing church like Wiser Lake Chapel is, identity is a big question. Who are we? And uh, the Apostle Paul begins to answer that question here in Colossians 1. So hear now the word of the Lord from Colossians. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this... You have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruits in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Join me in prayer. Most merciful Father, our great God in heaven, we come before you and before your word this morning, dependent upon you to reveal its truths to our hearts, to unlock the mysteries to our hearts and our minds, to draw us to you. We pray that you would do this this morning by the power of your spirit working in us. May you change us by your word, transform us continually, and send us out as lights into a world of darkness. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. My uh, first childhood memory, my first memory as a human being, although I've never been anything but a human being, is uh, just to clarify that, is, uh, was when I was four years old. I went on a family vacation to Yellowstone. <clears throat> I'm sure many of you have been to Yellowstone, and you know the sights and the sounds and the smells. And you know, there's three distinct things that I remember of my time there. The first was uh, there was a massive thunderstorm that came in and rolled in. And we were camping, unfortunately, and got very wet. And I remember this lightning bolt that I told my mom, I'm pretty sure it struck right next to me. My mom said that that didn't happen, but I, I remember it, so it must be true. Uh, the second thing that happened there was, you know, everyone's staring at the geysers, but the thing me and my siblings were excited about were the little marmots running around. And so I think my mom even has a picture of us you know, laying down, looking underneath the little boardwalk with the guys are shooting up behind us and we're looking underneath the boardwalk looking for the little marmot creatures because they're, they're kind of cute and interesting. Um, Geysers is water. It's, I've seen water. So anyway, you know, and then the, the other thing that I just remember like it was yesterday was uh, going on this, this horse ride. You know, I grew up in a family. We raised horses uh, for fun and so I've always ridden horses and I got to ride a trail horse named Cookie. And uh, we did this trail ride up into the mountains, and it was beautiful, and I still have pictures of that, and I still remember that. And, you know, as I was reflecting on these things and on this trip, what I realized is that I still love the same things. I still love marmots. I still don't love camping in the rain. Uh, I still love horses. And the families that we grow up in are formative for us. You know, they form our identity. They help form your habits. They shape your habits, your fears, your hopes, your dreams. Our families shape us, uh, and they form us, they guide us, and this isn't by accident. And what Paul is teaching us in this passage is that the church works much like a family, meant to give us habits, hobbies, meant to give us our hopes, our dreams, our identity. And as Paul is writing to this young church, a church that he's never visited, they're dealing with issues of identity. You know, they have outside cultural pressures challenging them, challenging their identity. Who are we? We today as a church, we struggle with this question. We have outside cultural pressures asking the question, who are we? Who am I? What defines me? Is it my job? Is it my satisfaction with my life, with my marriage, with my children? 
Is it my gender? Is, what is it that defines me? And we're extremely confused as a society. Who am I? And Paul is sharing with us foundational things of what it means to be Christian, what our identity is as a Christian. And what we find is that the foundation to our identity, our identity here is the truth, which is the gospel. And there's three ways that I want to talk about this morning. There's three ways that we find that the gospel truth gives us our identity and our purpose here. There's three ways that the gospel gives us our identity and our purpose. And the first way is this. The gospel changes us. The gospel changes us. I'm going to read verse 3 through 5 again. It says this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. We see as the gospel has changed us in three distinct ways. The gospel has changed us in three distinct ways. The first way that the gospel has changed us is that it's given us a new faith, a faith in Christ Jesus. You know, Hebrews 11, 1 says this about faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. And so this new faith that we have, this new faith in Christ Jesus, is a confidence and a conviction that Jesus is the Messiah. It sets the direction of our compass to say, listen, I'm going to trust, I'm going to put my faith in and trust in God versus I'm going to put my faith in and trust in anything other than God. And so the first thing that the gospel changes in us is it gives us a new faith, a faith in Christ, trusting in him and not in our own ability to see or not see. The second and related thing that you even see in this Hebrews 11 passage that it gives us is a new hope. You know, if, if faith sets the direction of your compass, hope sets the destination of your compass. It's the thing that's hoped for. And what is that aim? Well, the aim of hope is always uh, salvation. The treasures that are laid up for us in heaven. Right? That we will dwell with God forever. That that which is broken in this world will one day be made new. This is the hope that we have. And the beautiful thing is it's actually past tense. It's already laid up. It's already there for us. God the Father is already keeping it for you right now. And this gives us confidence in that hope because it's nothing that we have done to earn. It's nothing that we have done to hold it and keep it, to be good enough to, to hold it. But it's something that God has already laid up and he already has it for you. It is finished. And what we find is when faith and hope together... We are trusting in God and the gospel and the good news of Jesus to save us. Not in our jobs to save us. Not in our marriages to save us. Not in any of our relationships to save us. Because the thing is, even when those things are going great, at one point they will not go great. Uh, your relationships will fail you. Your spouses will fail you. Your children will fail you. Your roommates will fail you. You will fail yourself. And if our hope is in, in anything other than the living God, the one that is true, the one that can actually hold and carry your hopes, you will find yourself devastated. Because even those things that are good are not meant to carry your ultimate hope because they cannot save you. So the gospel changes us by giving us this new faith, this new hope. And lastly, it gives us a new love. 
Open faith lead to a love, it says here, for all the saints. You know, the church is a diverse place. This room is a diverse room. The only thing that's drawing us together in this room is that we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most of us have no business being friends outside of that truth. And this is a good thing. You know, in this room, we have people that are Dutch and people that aren't Dutch. Sorry. In this room, we have people that are rich. We have people that are poor. We have conservatives. We have liberals. We have everyone across the spectrum, people that you wouldn't normally uh, entertain hanging out with. And yet here we are, a family, bound together by the gospel of Christ. This is not normal. But because we are people that have been changed by the gospel, we have been given new loves. And now we're called to love the same things that Jesus loved. And what does Jesus love? He loves his children. He loves his people. And he gives that love to us. The gospel changes us, giving us a new faith, giving us new hope, giving us new loves, and transforming our entire identity. Uh, in my time in St. Louis, I had some really good friends who are still there. Their names are Pablo and Mary. About four months ago, I got a text from Pablo saying, hey, my wife Mary, we're headed to the hospital. It looks like we're having a baby. Be praying. This is kind of a group text thread. It's great. Praying for you guys. You know, uh, about an hour later, I get another text saying, hey, the heartbeat is slowing down on this girl, and we have to rush her in to, it will rush Mary in to, to get an emergency C-section. I said, all right, we're praying for you. Uh, then it was radio silence. You know, a couple hours later, we found out that uh, his daughter passed away. Her heartbeat slowed, and they weren't able to, and then by the time she was delivered, there was no heartbeat, no breath, and they weren't able to revive her. A month after that, I was able to visit, visit them in St. Louis, and I was talking to my friend Pablo, and he told me this story. He's like, you know, as I was there holding her, her name was Karis, in my arms, I was praying. I was praying, asking God, God, give her life. And it didn't happen. And he said something incredible. He said, my prayer, though, was not just that he would give her life, but I ended my prayer saying, but Father, your will be done. And he said he, he actually meant it. That whatever God did was the right thing. And he actually trusted and believed and had faith in God, even though he couldn't see that this was, that whatever God's will would be the right thing. How? How could you pray that prayer, thy will be done, when your child is dead in your arms? Because he had a, a faith and a future hope. He had a faith and a future hope that death has been defeated. That the sting of death has been removed. He was able to pray that prayer because he had been changed by the gospel. He had been given a new faith. He had been given a new hope. A hope beyond understanding at times. And the truth is, uh, we understand this kind of change, this kind of gospel change in our lives most profoundly when we suffer most deeply. I'd imagine if I sat down with every one of you and heard your story, it was when you were in your most desperate time in life that you realized who you were in Christ. When you realize when Christ is all you have, that he is all you need. It's in the midst of our suffering that we realize the gospel's transformative effects and power in our life. And the amazing thing is the gospel doesn't just change us and leave us by ourselves. 
But my friends, Pablo and Mary survived this tragedy, not on their own, but because they had a church family surrounding them, around them, encouraging them, loving them, praying for them, sharing meals with them, helping them through their sorrow, which leads us to the second aspect of our new identity in Christ. The gospel changes us, and the gospel brings us into a new family. The gospel brings us into a new family. I'm going to read this from verses 12 to 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here we find that through the gospel, we have been qualified to be in this family. You know, we all understand what qualifications are, right? To be a doctor, you have to pass certain tests and exams and you have to make yourself qualified to be a doctor. Uh, To be a pastor, you have to take tests and exams, and you have to qualify yourself to be a pastor. For all the professions that we have, you have to meet certain qualifications to do that work, right? Uh, And if you don't do a good enough job, if you don't pass the exams, if you don't pass the whatever markers are for your profession, you don't qualify for the job. So we understand qualifications. And in the gospel, it's not our work that qualifies us to be a part of this family. But it says here that it's the Father who qualifies you. Not anything else, not your heritage, not your job, not your money. It is the gospel. It is the Father who qualifies you. It's nothing that you can earn or attain of your own devices. This is amazing because we are a people of split devotions. You know, there's days where we love and we serve the God well, and there's days where we don't. We are a messy people. But since we are qualified in Christ by the Father, it is the Father who makes us able to be a part of his family. He's the one who qualifies us. And the beautiful thing is when he qualifies us and brings us into his family, he looks at you and he doesn't say, sinner, you're given a new identity. You're called saint, which means holy one, son, daughter, You know, it's interesting, when Paul writes his letters to the church, he's writing to believers, and he never calls believers as sinners. He never says, you are a sinner. Yes, we still struggle with sin, but that is not our core identity anymore. Our core identity is a saint, is holy one, righteous one. We are sons and daughters of the living God. This is incredible. Because it's not our goodness that makes us God's children. It's the Father alone that qualifies us for this honor. And he brings us into his family. And in bringing us into his family, he shares with us the benefits of being in his family, sharing the inheritance, that all that is his is ours. And it's not just his future inheritance where we one day live forever with God in heaven, but it's actually even right now we experience those benefits. You know, as families, what do we do? We share the, the triumphs in the trials with each other. We share our highs and our lows. And we go through those things, both in the weeds and up in the clouds, together, as one, as a body. You know, even as a family, one thing that we do together most nights over the dinner table is we share our highs and lows of the day. 
we go around the table, what was the best thing that happened to you today? What was the saddest thing that happened to you today? And most of the time, it's this, you know, the happiest thing was recess and lunch, and the saddest thing is math. <laughs> Sorry if you're a math person. Uh, we're working on it. Um, so, but families share this together. We share our lives together. We share meals together. You know, I have some really good friends who have been in the foster care, uh, who've been fostering children for the last handful of years. And just recently, they adopted two, two um, brothers that they had been fostering. And it was amazing. I got to go down and be a part of uh, this adoption ceremony, and it was incredible. I don't know if you know anything about the foster care system, but for someone to be able to adopt someone out of the foster care system, the biological parents have to renounce their rights. Uh, they have to say, I no longer have claim over this child. And once that happens, then the foster parent or whoever else can actually make a claim and claim to adopt them and to make them their own. And when you're doing that, you're saying everything that this child is is now mine. I claim their baggage. I claim everything about them, and they are now mine. And they're given a new name. They're given a new sense of identity, a new home, a new family, a new mom, a new dad, a new sister. It's an incredible process. And during this uh, ceremony, it ended, and the judge said something rather incredible. She said, now you are, this is now your forever family. This is now your forever family. And this, so these, these children that were adopted, it's like they were always in this family. It's like on paper to the government, it's like they were born into this family. And this is what God does for us, isn't it? He adopts us into his family, transferring us from one kingdom to the other. And through Christ, the rights of the kingdom of darkness over us have been renounced. The kingdom of darkness has no hold over your life anymore. You are now a part of the kingdom of light. We've been taken from the kingdom of death and no hope and given the kingdom of life and love and faith. This is an incredible thing, an incredible truth, one that I forget daily and I continually try to earn it. I think if I just do good enough, if I just do this better, if I just read my Bible more, if I just prayed more, then God would love me then. Friends, I'm telling you, God could not love you more than he does right now in this moment. It is sure, it is complete, it is true. And yet when he calls us into his family, he calls us to something more than just being loved and sitting in a seat. He calls us to a life that looks different. You know, my friends... Uh, who've adopted these boys, as I've been able to hang out with them over the last few years, one thing I've noticed about them is that not only have they taken the last, this new last name, but they've started to act like the family. They now have the family hobbies, <laughs> the family habits. Uh, they look like them. They talk like them. And the same is for us. When we're adopted into God's family, we're now given uh, new, new habits, new hobbies, new work. We're given the family work. And this is the third and final point here is that the gospel calls us to kingdom work. The gospel calls us to kingdom work. When we come into God's family, we enter into the family business. And the first thing that we learn about what this family work is, is I think rather surprising. I think we see it in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The first thing we're called to is knowing God, to knowing the King. 
to growing in our knowledge and wisdom of him. We're supposed to give ourselves to the task of knowing him. You know, it's one thing to know about him, to be able to kind of read the baseball stats off. You know, it's another thing to actually know God. How do you know anybody? You spend time with them. You talk to them. You share life with them. And we're called to do the same thing with God, the Father, who invites us to do that. He wants to. The living God, the God who created all things and sustains all things, he wants to meet with you. And it's interesting, the task happens actually through prayer. When Paul heard of the faith that this church had, the first thing he did, it said, was to pray, praying that they would be filled with knowledge and wisdom. And so we're, the work that we're to give ourselves to is to prayer. You know, prayer actually does work. <laughs> we kind of wonder sometimes, is this thing real? Is this just something that we do? You know, even for this church plant, I, we, I know that we have hundreds of people around the world praying for us, people in this room praying for our church plant. And I can tell you, we would not have any success apart from prayer. You read Acts. Their strategy for going to church is meeting together and praying. <laughs> it's actually kind of wild. I kind of imagine, what if churches actually trusted <laughs> that prayer in God's word would actually do the, that work for us? Prayer works. And the first task we're supposed to give ourselves is to prayer and to spending time with God, that he would fill us with his knowledge and wisdom, which leads to the second thing here which is good works. We read this, we read on in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What we find is that good work bears fruit and it flows out of a life that is, that is, that is rooted in Christ. You know, Good works is living out of a gospel culture in our everyday lives. You know, we're clear in our Protestant faith to say works do not save us. But as people that have been born in Christ, we will look different. We will act different. We will be different people. And so we're called to, to do that, to live out this gospel culture in our everyday lives, which says, as you have been loved, so love others. As Christ has loved you, so love your neighbor. As God has been patient leading you, be patient with people around you. This is our good work, right? loving God and loving others. And it's produced by the Spirit of God working in us, which happens whether we're in the workplace, whether we're at home, whether we're at the grocery store, wherever we find ourselves doing these good works, loving, extending the grace that we've received. You know, one of the things I think about is that the opposite of this kind of gospel culture, which is extending the, the love that you've received, is a religious culture, which says, I have to be good and do good to be loved, which produces all sorts of crazy ideas and legalism and rules, and it's not fun. But the gospel culture says that because I've been loved perfectly in Christ, I can do good. And it flows out of our, our love of Christ, our actions flowing out of being transformed people, this means that we can actually be humble and self-giving and encouraging. I don't need to be prideful when someone around me is doing better than me or, uh, or just worried about myself in the workplace or in the home, but I can actually give of myself. I can actually ignore things. I can bear with the people around me. And this transformation uh, 
means that there's no such thing as just a, a baker or just a farmer or just a truck driver or just a mother. That every task that we do brings God's kingdom to bear on this earth. If it's good work, if it's bearing fruit. And the beautiful thing about this too, we, we kind of read past it quickly, but in verse 6 it tells us that the gospel actually will bear fruit. Speaking of the gospel, it says, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel will increase. The gospel will bear fruit. The kingdom always grows. It's the mustard seed that grows until it becomes a tree. It's the leaven that gets put in a loaf and be, until the whole uh, loaf is full of leaven. The kingdom grows. And it grows through us as we live out the kingdom in our daily lives. As we live as transformed people in this world. Kingdom work brings us into relationship with the king. It produces good works and brings God's kingdom to this world. And so what we find is in the gospel, we have our community forming identity, right? That we have been transformed, that we've been given a new family, and that we've been given work to do here. And we are invited ambassadors as we do that, ambassadors of the kingdom of light. And it says that this is a joy for us to do. It's a joy to live as transformed people. And so for us, the challenge is this, that we would be people that would hold fast to this truth, that we would hope in the Lord, that we would encourage each other as, as a family that has been called saints, that has been called his beloved, and that we would let these things spur us to action, to work, knowing that God delights in his children. Let me pray for us. Holy and merciful Father, King of light and life, we give you thanks that you have called us to this new family, that you have transformed our lives. May you continue to transform us. May we be your transformed family, living, shining your light into the world around us. May you give us courage to do so. May you give us strength. May you encourage us to be that family loving each other, bearing with one another, being patient with one another. Continue to work in our lives by the power of your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our friend. Amen. Thank you, Craig. I uh, d don't worry, I'm not planning to move anytime soon, but uh, an exciting, it, it's exciting what's happening with, with both these church plants we've heard from this month, and uh, uh, a way that we can partner with them is, is through prayer, uh, the very things we read about, prayer, and also by supporting these church plants. And uh, I know in one sense you could say, well, we've had t t two church plants coming in the last month, and you could feel a little bit overwhelmed by all these things, needs that need supported. Uh, and I, my goal is not to overload you with opportunities. These are things that we believe in as a council, and the council is voted to support as a church. Uh, these are things we believe in personally, and Kelsey and I are supporting both these personally. So they're, they're things that we believe in. Uh, and so the other way to look at it is, wow, there are great things happening all around our state, uh, perhaps at a faster pace than it has in our lifetime, that we're seeing churches being planted, gospel-preaching churches. And so uh, that's the other way to look at it, is this is exciting times to live in. Our confession of faith 
It's a good confession that sticks with this theme of the mission and the gospel, but I, I want to point this out to you. It comes from the Canons of Dort, which if you know church history or you're in the church history Sunday school class, the Canons of Dort is where the reform majority in the Netherlands responded, and actually it was this whole international coalition that formulated the Canons of Dort, but they responded to the group called the Armenians who, who've said, we, we choose God and we exercise our free will and salvation. Now, oftentimes the caricature is that if you're on the other side of that debate, you're with the reform majority, a sort of Calvinist, that you have a low view of missions and proclaiming the gospel. And I, I only give you that piece of background because here in the Canons of Dort that we're about to use for our confession is the clearest statement of the importance of missions and evangelism that you find almost anywhere before the modern missionary movement in the 19th century. So I ask you, using the words printed in your worship guide, Christian, what do you believe? The promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction, to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends the gospel. Let us sing now, uh, as we close, hymn 161, reflecting on this identity that we are given in the gospel and in Christ. Hymn 161, O Christ, our hope, our heart's desire.
Uh, hear now the benediction from a little bit later in the book of Colossians. Receive God's grace. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Amen. Thank you.